I'm looking forward to that day when we'll be with people from every country up in heaven worshiping the Lamb face to face. What's that going to be like? I want to thank you all also for your prayers last week and for becoming our sending church. That's exciting. And uh, we count it a great privilege to be sent by Berean Baptist Church. And we've enjoyed worshiping here for almost two years now. And uh, we look forward to many more wonderful times of worship. This morning, I uh, wanted to look at the headlines and just see uh, what's going on with the new country of Chaz. They wanted to secede from the Union up there in Seattle because we're going to read a psalm, a beautiful psalm today, that talks about the one who's going to rule the nations and the world in chaos. My goodness, and I saw more chaos in Atlanta, more burning, a Wendy's burnt down. Our country truly is in chaos. It's with that background. Let's read Psalm 2. If you could open your Bibles to Psalm 2. I haven't put it on the screen, so you're going to have to open up on your apps or get a hard copy of the Word of God from in front of you. Let's read Psalm 2. This is a Messianic Psalm, and uh, it came to be understood that after the fact. In its original writing, I believe by David, we get that from Acts chapter 4, verses 25 and 26, when the early church is praying, they quote this psalm and they attribute it to David. So I believe David wrote it. It was very political and it was talking about the political situation at the time that David wrote it. Probably maybe he wrote it as, his, as he was reflecting on 2 Samuel chapter 7 when God gave him a promise. David wanted to build a house for God, but God says, you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to give you a house. And then he gave him the wonderful promises that his descendants would rule forever. Specifically, it was a, a prophecy about the Messiah who would be the son of David and rule forever. So I think David was probably reflecting on the, those promises of God to him. Maybe when his son Solomon was coronated. But apparently this psalm was used at every installation of a king. When they ascended to the throne, they would go through a ritual, just as you did last week for us. You laid your hands on us. There was a ritual. You were commissioning us to missionary service. So when the king stepped up into his throne, taking over from his father, there was a ceremony. They put a, a crown on his head. They gave him a document, probably a, a copy of the covenant, maybe some of Moses' laws. And uh, they, they said some words of praise, and the people said some words, and they said, long live the king. So it was probably used as a coronation uh, psalm. Down through the ages, though, as history's developed, it's come to represent the reign of Jesus Christ. And I believe it's not yet fully fulfilled. There's still some that's going to be fulfilled in the future in the book of Revelation. We'll look at that briefly as we have time. And uh, so it's very political. But today, my call is not for us to go and do some political action. We're the church of Jesus Christ. God has a, a purpose 
and a plan for nations and kings and presidents and rules and laws are good. That's not what I'm going to address today because we're a spiritual kingdom. We have a king, he is Jesus, and right now I believe he's reigning spiritually through us, the church. That's how he's acting in the world. So I believe we're here even in Psalm 2, in a hidden way, I'll explain it to you, and I think it's got intense relevance to us today, partly so we don't get too disillusioned. I like watching politics and following the news, sort of a hobby when I get tired, I just see what's going on and I read the paper, turn on the radio, and they're laughing back there because they know how true that is. I've got to be careful, my own family, I've got to be careful not to listen to too much news. And uh, if I were to ask you today, a neutral onlooker looking on at you and how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you think, how you talk, what tribe would they say you belong to? Now, I'm not talking about the African tribes. They have tribalism in Africa where the, the Hutus and the Tutsis or whatever, they, they were fighting each other and they were killing each other and there's whole tribes are wiped out through uh, terrible acts of violence. I'm not talking about that kind of tribalism. But some have analyzed our current modern political situation in the United States also as tribalism. We have a tribe. Maybe your tribe is Republican. Maybe Democrat. Maybe you're conservative. Maybe you're an anti-socialist. Ah, socialism's taking hold of our country. Ah, oh, oh. Maybe you're part of the American tribe. I don't know, maybe for your law and justice tribe. What is at the most central core of your being? Your identity, your tribe. I'm an American. I was it from my first breath, though I wasn't born in this country. I'm American, so I'm part of the American tribe. But I'll have to confess, it's not part of my deepest identity. I used to tell my students in India, why are you lining out up outside the United States Embassy trying to go to the United States? You'll just go there, you'll get a job, you'll have a nice life, you'll be a lot better than here, that's for sure, but then you're gonna die. Just a few years. Line up to get into God's kingdom. The tribe that I'm the most proud of being is the tribe of Jesus' kingdom. And I believe as we study this psalm, we'll see that we are, we can relax. Our king is in control. We don't have to fret out and freak out when the world is messed up around us because our king is on his throne and we're on the winning side. The title of my sermon today is Join the War Effort on the winning side. Let's read Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us turn their fetters apart. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. 
Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall shatter them with earth like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment, take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, the structure of this beautiful poem, this hymn, it's got four stanzas. It's very easy. Number one, two, and three, that's stanza one. And it's God, it's, it's David speaking, observing the chaos around him of the nations who were probably trying to, to take off their subservience to Solomon. A lot of countries around Israel had to give uh, homage to, to Solomon and to Israel because uh, Israel had conquered them. They had to give tribute. They're trying to tear that off of them. So he's observing their futile efforts at, at uh, getting Israel off their backs. That's verses one to three. That's David's voice. In verses four through six, that's the second stanza. That's the voice of God in heaven. The scene shifts to heaven, and that's God the Father speaking. In verse, the third stanza, verses 7 through 9, that's the Son, the Anointed One, the Christ. That's His voice. And then finally, the last three verses, verses 10 through 12, that's again David finishing off and giving wisdom instruction to the kings of the earth, you and me, all who live on the earth, how they ought to respond in light of this. This is a picture of God's rule despite the chaos and the confusion all around us. Now, the, the opposition. I spoke about Chaz, the autonomous zone in Seattle, all the riots and the confusion. I believe, yes, I believe that uh, human rulers, police forces, yes, we make, they make mistakes. And uh, human, all human authority has its faults. But on the other side, we see the foolishness of lawlessness and uh, rebellion. I believe the defund the police, let's have an autonomous zone, all these demands, all this looting and chaos that's going on, to me is a good picture of a much greater rebellion that's going on in the world. We see it right in front of our eyes and we realize how ridiculous it is for them to do that. They're hurting themselves. I heard they, it's hard to find food in some of those places because they burn down the places where they buy food. And the police who are there to protect them, they want to kill them. How are they going to be protected? Just let them have what they want and they'll bear the fruit of it and they'll no longer want it, hopefully. That's sort of what I was reading Romans chapter 1 yesterday in my devotions. I just saw God's judgment on people when they choose to rebel is to let them have what they want. Take away the restraints. The restraints that God has put of law and order are good for us. They're good for our nation. They're good for me personally to have restraints. 
and uh, lawlessness wants to get rid of all restraints. Let's tear off their fetters. Let's tear off their bonds. We don't want law. We don't want people telling us what to do. The, the violence and foolishness in our nation are a picture of the foolishness of mankind thinking he can tear off God's rule. I don't need God in my life. I'm happy as an atheist. Most atheists believe in God, but they're angry with him. That's what they are. They hate him. Everywhere in many countries of the world, it comes in different forms. Maybe in the form of idolatry. Maybe in the form of communism. Whatever form it takes, it takes hundreds of forms. Down through the ages, the big story of history from beginning to end is man is just like what we're seeing in our nation today. Men hate God. Let's advance the flame, uh, frame here. Can you advance it back there or do I have to do it? Let's read something from the New Testament that gives this theme. What is the nature of the rebellion? It says they're in uproar. Jesus put it in these words in John 15. He says, verses 18 and 19, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. It's a pretty strong word, hate. We're in a struggle, and people hate Christ. People hate Christians. People hate the kingdom of God. In Colossians 1.21, it's not up there, Paul characterizes sin as enmity against God is in the very heart of the human nature. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. There's a hostility of mind, that's the core of sin. Romans 8, 6, and 7 puts it this way. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. So men in their natural state are enemies. They hate God. They hate Jesus Christ. They may not express it in such clear words. They may not have such clarity to understand what they're doing, but that is at the heart of the matter. So if you take the church of Jesus Christ out of the United States, the United States will be very much like hell. Some idealism that the United States is always going to rise and succeed and be successful is foolishness. The only reason the United States has been a great nation is because there were many in this country who sought the God of heaven and who bowed their knee towards his laws. So I don't have a lot of hope for this country unless there's a revival of allegiance to Jesus Christ. Without that, I don't give much hope. I feel like we're going down the drain slowly, even fast sometimes. That's the nature of this rebellion, and it's uproar. It also characterizes it in verses 1 to 3 as in vain. Why do you plot your strategies in vain? It's useless. It's not going to achieve anything. How do you and I think, how does any person think, or any nation, or any king, or anyone who's opposed themselves against God think that they can win? <laughs> the Lord Almighty, how can we fight against him? One of the Roman emperors thought he could, Diocletian. He uh, went to Spain, as far as Spain, and he left some pillars there. 
on the pillar it reads Diocletian, Jovian, Maximin, Herculeus, Caesareus, Augusta. He liked a bunch of names. For having extended the Roman Empire in the east and the west and for having extinguished the name of Christians who brought the Republic to ruin. So Diocletian thought it was his job to kill Christians because they were the enemies. Many Roman emperors did that. Their graves are with us today. Christianity seems to be doing fine. It spread a lot further than the Roman Empire. Now it's almost in every nation in the world, doing well. You can't fight God, it's useless. Another characteristic of the opposition, it was united. It says there, the kings and the people are gathering together. They're united in their opposition to God. We've had uh, some opposition when we were in India. By God's grace, it never came directly against us. I never had anyone attack me or shoot at me. Or, but uh, God rescued us a few times just in time, so nothing came to fists. But we support some, some workers in India, some pastors. One time they were preaching the gospel in a village, and a group of about 70 people gathered and started beating them. And the police came and they took them to, uh, took them to the prison. Luckily, they, the court case didn't, uh, wasn't successful because the accusers didn't show up. They just wanted to put pressure on them to don't come back to our village. We had the, the government of India investigate us for a year and a half. And uh, they were, uh, by God's grace, we got out of that too. But we've seen some opposition. One of the terrible kinds of opposition that's come for the Kamar believers who trusted in Christ, mostly young people, as soon as they believe, all their village comes against them and uh, really puts on pressure for them to give up the faith, and some have. So we really need to pray for God's kingdom to be strong and people to stand up for their faith and not go back. Casting off restraints. I put up a strange verse. You may wonder why on earth did I put Matthew 11, 28 through 30 up there? Coming back to that idea of casting off restraints. I saw a, a comment from Spurgeon. So beautiful, I thought, that's, that's what I want to talk about. He said, your attitude to a graceless neck, the yoke of Christ is intolerable, but to the saved sinner, it is easy and light. We may nudge, judge ourselves by this. Do we love that yoke? Or do we wish to cast it from us? Let's read Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. A yoke is on the neck of, of uh, cattle. And it's a type of restriction. It, it forces them to stay together and, and plow in the field or wherever you're leading them. So Christ's law is a kind of yoke upon you and me. People in the world want to get rid of it. Christ said it's easy. What's your attitude to the yoke of Christ? Is it easy and light and delightful to you? Or is it something you want to cast off? Your answer to that question might show the situation of your heart. We've finished the first stanza. Let's quickly go to the second stanza, verses 4 through 6. This is God's rule from Zion, his holy hill. What's God's response? His first response in verse 4 is he laughs at them. <laughs> it's like God is zero threaten, 
threatening from all the opposition in the world. It doesn't faze him in the least. And then in verses 5 and 6, he's got two responses. One response is he speaks. His word terrifies people. And also, he says, I've already installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. What's the meaning of that? He's installed his king on Zion, his holy hill. You and I know that that refers to Jesus Christ. He is the king who has been established on Zion, the holy hill. Zion, of course, is Mount Moriah. It's, it's in Jerusalem. It's associated where the temple was built. Uh, very close, in fact, to where Jesus Christ was crucified. What's hidden in this psalm, and we don't see except as we study the rest of Scripture, is the suffering of Jesus Christ. We see Jesus Christ as the, the ruling one here. The Messiah is going to rule. But what happened in Zion? If you turn to Zechariah 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey, even a coal, the foal of a donkey. The one, the king who was installed in Zion is not going to come marching in with armies and force and make you submit to him as your king. He has the right to do that. That's what political rule does. That's what the, the descendants of David did who ruled in Jerusalem. They had armies and they attacked and they said, we control you. Now you bow the knee, kiss my foot in submission. That's not how Jesus Christ has, is extending his kingdom. The rulership style of the king installed in Zion is amazing. It's beautiful. He's loving. He's good. If there's no other reason to submit to this king, it could be he's very powerful. I want to be on the winning side. I want to be on the team that wins. I want to be on the one that's the strongest. God is the strongest. He's the Lord Almighty. Even if he was evil, it would be smart to be on his side because he's going to win. But the amazing thing we learn from Zion is that this God is not only powerful, but he's very loving. He's very humble. He's very sacrificial. And he rules gently. This psalm has been interpreted for us in Acts chapter 4. Can you advance the slide? Here we are. Acts chapter 4. The, the early church is praying. Pa, uh, Peter and uh, John have been thrown in prison uh, for healing a man. And they're let out of prison. The church is praying for them. And they quote Psalm chapter 2. And they interpret it for us. So let's find the interpretation here. Let's read this together. Acts 4, 23 to 31. When they, had released, when they were released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against 
your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together were shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. So here we have a wonderful interpretation of Psalm 2. They're quoting it and they take the opposition of the nations in uproar and the leaders gathering together as Pontius Pilate and the chief priests and the people of Israel. And what did they do in their opposition? They took Jesus and they killed him. That's what people want to do with Jesus Christ, the true ruler of the universe, the true ruler in Zion, kill him, crucify him. That's what the rebellious heart of man wants to do. Lawlessness, riot, get rid of their yoke. But he died for you and me. His specialty is to take enemies, is to take those nations that rebel and make them his possession. Let's move on to the next verse because we see that his uh, kingdom is extended in a strange way. How does, uh, can you advance the frame? We'll skip that verse. There we go. Oh, maybe I went too far. I'll read it. You can uh, follow me if it's not up there. The, the, uh, the extension of God's kingdom is in a strange way. What, what does verse 8, I believe it says? It says, ask of me and I will give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. So how is this kingdom which has been given to the Son by the Father, how is it going to be extended now? It's going to be extended by asking. The Father asked the Son to ask and I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Why on earth is it such a gentle way? We know that when Jesus Christ ascended to heaven, he began a new ministry. What was the new ministry he began? He began the ministry of intercession. If we go to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 5 through 10, it's got this, uh, this beautiful... Uh, here, let me read it for you. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 5 through 10. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he also said in another passage, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. The way that Jesus extends his kingdom is by interceding for them. He's asking the Father, give me India, give me Mali, give me Peru, give me the Kamar people, give me those people. That's the amazing thing. He's a priest. He's interceding. His kingly 
aspect is not so strong now. God the Father is on the throne. The Son's going to come and take his throne. We'll learn that. I sort of skipped around here. I'm sorry to confuse you. Uh, I skipped over some comments I wanted to make. The, the verses, if you go back there to uh, the ones in Matthew, I skipped over the coronation day in, uh, in verse 7. I, I went to verse 8. I forgot about 7. I'm coming back to verse 7. Sorry about that. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So this, this idea of you are my son, it actually comes from, uh, as I said, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. That's up there. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. This was a promise that was given to the Davidic kings that whoever is on the throne is a son to God. There's a special relationship between God and the Davidic king. And then we find when Jesus came as the son of David, several times from heaven, he heard this voice, didn't he? The first time was at his baptism in Matthew 3:17, And behold, a voice came out of the heavens, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We find later in the, trans, in the transfiguration, Matthew 17, verse 5, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice came out of the heavens. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Is that when Christ became the son? No. We believe, we know from theology that God, the son, has been son of God from eternity past. He didn't start to become the son of God ever. He's always been the son of God. So what does this strange verse in, in verse 7, what does it mean? Today I have begotten you. What is the today there? Well, I believe we have a hint from that. It was not at the baptism of Jesus, though he affirmed the sonship. It was not at his transfiguration. If we turn to Acts 13, verses 32 and 33, and Romans 1 and 4, we find when Jesus Christ was announced, uh, when he took up his kingship as the son, when he ascended the throne, his coronation day. When was the coronation day of the son? When did he assume his sonship? Let's read Acts 13, verses 32 to 33. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus as it, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Paul is preaching in one of his missionary journeys and he's definitely, all the verses around there are talking about the resurrection. He's referring to the resurrection and he quotes Psalm verse uh, chapter 2, verse 7, the one we just read. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he pins that to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The day that Jesus Christ was begotten, in this sense here, was his resurrection day. Romans 1.4 also teaches that. Romans 1.4, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness Jesus Christ our Lord one translation put it he was appointed to be the son of God in power so he's always been the son from eternity past but at, at a per certain moment in history he was born of a virgin that had a, a 
historical moment, didn't it? He, he incarnated. And then he went to Calvary. That was a certain point in time. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And after that, what happened? He had his coronation day. He rose from the dead. He's made the king. And that's what it means, today I have begotten you. He, he is installed as the rightful ruler of Israel and the rightful ruler of all of the nations as the human king whom God appointed. It's a human who must rule among us. Who better than Jesus Christ, the rightful son of David, the king who rose from the dead, who conquered the grave, who gives life. He is the king. He is the one who was appointed to be the son ruling in power by his resurrection from the dead. After that, what does he do? Before he sends to heaven, he calls his disciples and he says, Matthew 28, verse 18. What does that say? Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. I'm the king. All authority has been given to me now. The Father begot me today as I rose from the dead. Now go, I give that authority to you. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So how do we fulfill God's rulership through his anointed Jesus Christ today? You and I do that as we obey the Great Commission. As we rule together with him, our King Jesus Christ has sent us out to extend the kingdom. You and I extend the kingdom through peace, through convincing hearts and minds, through praying and calling out, through straining and struggling in evangelism and missions. This is the great way that we can fulfill this psalm for today. Verse 8 is where we are today. The Son has been installed on his throne. He has given you and me authority. And we go out to the nations to establish his kingdom. To bring about subjects in his kingdom. How is it? Let's read verse 8 again in Psalm 2. Ask of me, I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. And the very ends of the earth as your possession. So the son will get the nations as his, as his inheritance and his possess, as his possession. The Bungia tribe has zero Christians. We have been praying. I've been praying for years. God, we need to reach them. How can we do it? I told you, I shared with you recently, God answered that prayer. A guy called Akilesh, when I was in India in January, he said, I go out in the jungles. He, he was a, a naturalist, an environmentalist. He wanted to save animals. And he loves the jungles and going among the tribals. But he wasn't in ministry. But God worked in his life a year and a half ago. He came to faith. He was a nominal Roman Catholic. He's come to faith now. He trusts Jesus. He's been reading the Bible every day. He's into ministry. He goes out along with the pastor on visitation. And when I met him in January, the Holy Spirit nudged me and I felt okay so I asked him hey would you like to reach the Bunjia tribe so we took him down to the tribe and he mingled with them and then he wrote me about two months ago saying I want to do that now you have taken us on for ministry so you have taken on the Bunjia tribe 
because we're going to pay that man's salary. He's going to leave his job and go full-time into reaching the Bunjia tribe. So, Berean Baptist Church is reaching the nations in many places, wherever you have missionaries. And the Bunjia tribe, pray for them. Will you keep them up in your prayers? What does verse 8 say in Psalm 2? Ask of me. Ask of me. Who have you been asking God for? Which neighbor? Which friend? Which group? Which nation? Ask of me. He says that to the Son, but you and I are part of that because we're the disciples of Jesus Christ. He's our King, and whatever He asks, we also ask. Whatever is on His heart is also on our heart. Are the nations on your heart? Are the peoples on your heart? Are our African American brothers and sisters on your heart? The way that God is going to bring true racial reconciliation is through the church. Laws are not going to do it. We need laws. We need good laws of anti-discrimination. We need the police. But the true light and salt, the true method by which to bring the races together in harmony is the church of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus told us to love everybody. Every skin color. And we can do it with his help. We ought to be the example, the shining example to our country of racial harmony and care and concern for our brothers of all races, of all peoples. That's what evangelism and missions is all about. On that day when we're before the throne, when we're before the Lamb from every country, how beautiful that will be. What a perfect example of united nations. The church is the true united nations. The one up in New York is a mess. They can't get along because men in his rebellion cannot get along. We, as the church, are the true United Nations. Ask of me, who are you asking to God for today? That's the offer to those who believe in him. That's what we want. But verse 9 is also there. If we move on, this is going to be fulfilled in the future. This is for those who refuse the call. This is for those who insist on rebellion. It's very obvious from what's going on as we follow the riots and the turmoil that we must have law enforcement, that we must have jails. Some people want to get rid of all the jails and let all the people out of jail. out. God has to have a jail. For peace to be in the universe, for him to rule, there has to be a jail. That's the sad truth. It's the truth. The jail is called hell. And those who are going to be crushed, who refuse to bow the knee, that day is coming. It's a fearsome day. It's a terrible day. It's the climax when the king won't come on a colt, the foal of a colt in peace, behold Zion, your king, peacefully coming. He's going to come on a white horse with a sword in his mouth with which to smite the nations. And he will tread the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of God Almighty. He's going to defeat the men and women who, and the nations who raised their fist at him and said, We will not have this king to rule over us. These, this psalm is quoted in Revelation three, several times. 
Turn to Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 to 27. You could advance the frames. Somehow needs new batteries here. Is that it? Revelation 2, 26 to 27. This is uh, written to the, ch the church at Thyatira, one of the seven churches. We've been studying that in our Wednesday uh, Bible study. Once we get going and all, come on out, you men. Is that for men? I guess it's for men. Women have their group. Uh, it's a wonderful study, the book of Revelation with uh, John. So Thyatira is one of the churches there. Revelation 2, 26 to 27, one of the promises given there. If you overcome, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I also have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. In India, we have uh, disposable cups. You rarely see them nowadays, but they used to be a lot more common when I was a kid. Uh, instead of paper cups, you actually get clay cups. They're very cheap, uh, not polished or uh, uh, baked very much. Just a little bit. They just, uh, the potters do them really quickly. So you get tea in a, a clay cup and you drink it. And after you've drunk that baby, you can just throw it down on the ground, 10 pieces that quickly. Pottery, it breaks very easily. Even nice, beautiful pieces of pottery that are baked hard. Imagine an iron rod. The iron rod is very harsh, hard. That pottery smashes into hundreds of pieces. That's what's gonna to happen to the enemies of Jesus Christ. That's gonna to happen to lawless people. That's gonna to happen to people who don't want Jesus to be their king. That's what's gonna happen during the millennium. When Jesus Christ comes to rule for a thousand years, you and I who have overcome will rule with him and the law will be without mercy. God's gonna have a dispensation. Jesus Christ is gonna rule from Jerusalem as the king and he's gonna have a strict rule. I believe that's a promise for you and me. We will reign with him. How would you like to be strict? Well, you can have a chance to be like that, I guess. Revelation 6, 15 and 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? That's the... the coming of our Lord when they want to hide from him and get behind the rocks. The kings, the judges, the rulers of the earth are hiding from the wrath of the Lamb. And finally, Revelation 19.15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God Almighty. If you read that beautiful passage, he's coming on a horse with the armies of heaven behind him and he's coming to judge. God is on his throne. Jesus Christ is on his throne. One day his rule will be fully shown. Right now it seems like we're on the losing side. Right now to follow Jesus Christ is suffering. Right now it is sacrifice. 
It's the style in which the king of Zion rules now through you and me. Yes, we suffer. But it's going to be the winning side. It's going to be the ruling, winning side. So the psalm concludes in verses 10 through 12. Let the sun rule in your heart. Kiss the sun is how some translations put it. That's what the Hebrew actually has. Kiss the sun. When you show uh, deference, when you show loyalty, I am going to worship, I am going to follow this king. You reach down and kiss the foot to show your obeisance, your, your loyalty. And that's what putting Christ in your heart means to believe in him with all your heart. To say, he is my king, I give the kingdom of my world to him. You rule in my heart, Lord. And there are several warnings on there. That's the nature of the king who rules from Zion. He gives warnings. He doesn't want to smash people to pieces. He's giving them a chance. Worship, love, honor, serve the Lord with gladness. I tell you who serves the Lord with gladness. Pastor Kurt, have you seen him every time he's up here worshiping? He's smiling. He's so beautiful at smiling as he worships the Lord. Did you notice that? Look at Pastor Kurt next time he comes, okay? Don't tell him I told you that. But uh, he's just smiling. He just loves worshiping. When I read that, I thought of him. Worship the Lord with gladness. Serve him. Be joyful. When we're joyful, it honors our king. And serve him. So the psalm ends in this beautiful line. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. Run to him. If you're, how are we going to apply this to our lives today? I thought of four ways we can do it as we close. Well, you just have to take me by faith here. Uh, I guess we'll get to it in the millennium. Um, so, if you're still a rebel, stop rebelling. Change sides. You're on the losing side. Join the winning side. Come to Christ. Trust him as your Savior and Lord. Don't fight him. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. There's no one like him. He's all-powerful, but he's all-loving. He's merciful. He's good. We could go on and on with his virtues. There's no king like Jesus. Change sides. Don't be foolish. Your rebellion is useless. It's not going to achieve anything. It's going to hurt you. Change sides if you're on the wrong side. Stop rebelling. Believe in Jesus Christ. He died for you. Second, I've got four applications today. Emphasize your eternal citizenship. That's your primary tribe. Have you got into politics too much? Like I'm sometimes guilty of. Sometimes I get up in the morning instead of going straight to my Bible or prayer, I look at the news and get too much into that. That's terrible. I need to repent of that. You know, my primary identity is not my American citizenship, though I like that. It's my eternal citizenship. That's my tribe. I'm proud of my membership. I want to wear a hat. Not that says MAGA. Not that I'm against that. I want to proudly emphasize my citizenship. I'm part of the kingdom of God. I'm going to wear it, and that's who I am. I don't care what you think. I love my king, and that's my tribe. 
Listen, you gotta have a tribe. There's no such thing as a tribeless person. What's your tribe? What's your primary identity? Are you proud of your tribe? Emphasize your eternal citizenship. I'm a citizen of the king. The eternal kingdom of God, of Jesus Christ, he's my king. Emphasize it. You know, some of you might want to take a class. I put up there classperspectives.org. This is a beautiful class. It goes into the... Uh, every one of you here is an American citizenship by, citizen by birth, I believe, except a few who may have emigrated. Is Emmanuel here, I thought? And uh, he came from Austria. And then we got um, uh, Dr. Cohen from Germany. But, oh, and and, and uh, Tina, right? From India. Yeah, Crystal, sorry. Crystal from, from uh, India. But the rest of you, you just got your citizenship by birth, okay? But they chose to become Americans. When you became Americans, did you have to take a class in uh, history and all that, right? Yeah, they had to take a class to learn about America. Well, have you taken a class to learn about the history of missions? And, you know, how did Christianity spread in the world? Uh, what are the good strategies to spread missions? And uh, what is the biblical basis for missions? It's from beginning to end. Genesis to Revelation is full of missions. So this is a great class. You can take it online or you can take it in person. Uh, so perspectives. I've had it myself. I highly recommend it. It's a great thing. Uh, perspectives, okay? Number three, C. Enlist in the Salvation Army. I don't mean the place downtown where you can get furniture, okay? Now that, that one used to be very good. I have met Salvation Army personnel in India who actually share the gospel with people. It had a very good beginning, the Salvation Army, okay? More than just uh, good work that it does, but it, it had the work of salvation. It shared the gospel in, in, in missions. Join the Salvation Army, okay? And become a Christian jihadi. What does jihad mean? Jihad means struggle, okay? Now if you're a Muslim jihadi, what do you do? You go blow yourself up so other people die. Okay, if you're a Christian jihadi, you struggle for your king to extend his rule in the earth. You struggle, that's what jihadi means. And we don't go blow ourselves up, we give up our life, we take up our cross, we follow Jesus so other people can come to life. A Christian jihadi gives life to other people through dying to self. It may be through prayer, prayer is not easy. Prayer of intercession is like dying. There's so many other things I could be doing, but I'm gonna take these 10 minutes to be a Christian jihadi. Sacrificing my time, praying for a, na a nation, a, a people, my neighbor, someone, I'm gonna be a jihadi so others can have life. It may mean going, it may mean giving, it may mean all sorts of ways based on your creativity, but we need Christian jihadis who, who catch the vision of God's kingdom. Uh, I, I found this last, this link here, globalmediaoutreach.com. It's connected to godlife.com. Just last weekend when we were meeting with a friend called John, and he was a volunteer there. If you want to do evangelism, you can sign up to be a volunteer, and people from all over the world go to that God Life, and they ask questions from Saudi Arabia, from Tazbekistan, from wherever, even maybe from Chaz now. I don't know. And you can... Uh, you can volunteer your time to be in touch with them and bring them to Christ. That's a cool opportunity. Maybe you want to do that. And the last one, intercede for the nations. Adopt a missionary to and pray for them and they request daily. There's a lot of missionaries that this church supports. Thank you for those who pray for us. I pray for about 
I don't know how many, 20 missionaries. I get their prayer things, emails, and I take the time when I get the email to read it and pray for their needs. There are all sorts of people we can pray for, missionaries. Get one or two of them, pray for them, know their needs. I think that's how we can put this into uh, practice. And then there's two websites I've given here, operationworld.org and joshuaproject.net. Those have a lot of information on different countries, how many Christians are there, and uh, how the gospel is spreading, what they need, how you can pray, how you can get involved. So I pray that you will take pride in your king. I pray that you will join the war effort on the winning side. Don't get freaked out. Yes, we live in a country that's messed up. A lot of rioting. Let's pray for our nation also. That God will have mercy upon it. And there'll be more people. The church can be salt and light to bring racial harmony in our nation. Let's pray as we close. And then I don't know. I think, is the service dismissed at that point? Or is someone coming up to give announcements? Anyway, I'll pray and we'll see what happens. (laughs) Father God, I thank you that you sent your son. You set him up on Zion, your holy hill, and what an amazing thing you did there. As you put him to death for you and me, for us, Lord, here down, you put him to death for us. May we follow his ruling style, his leadership example of dying for others. Help us truly to become jihadis for your sake. Help us to love you deeply. May it be at the core of our being to to love you and extend your kingdom. And may you extend your kingdom here in Lynchburg with our neighbors. Give us a vision and a burden to pray for people to ask of you, even as you are asking, Lord Jesus, of your Father, may we learn to be true intercessors and know that you answer. Build up our faith, Lord God. May we be a praying church. Father God, we pray if there's any who haven't come to faith, that they might come to faith, that they may bow their knee, they may accept your kingship, your saviorship in their lives. Father God, we pray that you use the missionaries who have gone out from this church. I think of Eli right now, down there in Brazil. They've been there just more than, about more than a year now. May you bless their family and strengthen them, encourage them in times of disappointment and trial. Lord God, the, the ones in uh, Nebraska, who I believe their son Timothy who had surgery, may be close to them and strengthen them and help them as they reach out to the minority people there, the immigrants. Father God, we we thank you that you rule in our hearts. We go forth with hope and joy. We go forth wanting to be joyful this week. Help us to serve you with joy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.